Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Back in studio. Back in studio. How was the parade? The Macy's uh, Day Thanksgiving parade. Uh, it was. It was pretty awesome. I mean, uh, like we had uh, we had to sit out, you know, and wait for like two hours to get to our seats. But then, uh, yeah, watching floats come down Central Park West, kind of iconic American scene. Yeah. Was there yeah. was there a favorite float with the ladies? <sighs> I mean. I think uh, Chase from Paw Patrol kind of crushed. Nice. You know, like, like, I mean, there's like a star power, like when Chase is coming down, yeah. you know, Chase is on the case, uh, as you will. Um, and then there, like, what's sad is there's like these other ones that like, they don't know who it is. Like Ronald McDonald, they were like, thought it was kind of scary. Oh, like, like. <laughs> take that marketing. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like uh, cause we don't take into McDonald's, you know? But so there are these like iconic images from my childhood that are like, who's that boring float? Uh, oh, he, there's Chase. There's this new Netflix character that I don't even know the name of, you know? Oh, that's um, cool though. So it makes you feel old, but it's cool. That's fun. It's very fun. Can I actually say it was, yeah. I got almost like emotional being in a crowd of people watching a parade. You know like what? COVID, you know, like uh, like seeing a like a, a like the Hampton band or something. Like I was just like, this is awesome, you know. I felt the same way just kind of being on an airplane. Yeah. I was really happy to just be I don't know. I I flew from here to DC. I went to the Hertz guy, rented a car, sat in god awful DC traffic for a couple hours, and I was like, you know what? This feels normal. I'm content. Yeah, I'm I'm here for this, you and, know. And then what was really cool, Ben, was uh I think I went to bed on Thanksgiving night feeling as full and bad about myself as I ever have in my life. Yeah. I mean, hot take coming. Uh, mm-hmm. Turkey's not that great, you know? Turkey's like, fine. Uh, I'm a stuffing guy. It's, it's like, uh, it's not necessarily like the meal that I would choose as like the one big meal a year. You know? No, I wouldn't either. Yeah. I wouldn't either. I'm more of a, more of a ham fan. Yeah. But my enough- mom makes a gravy that mom, if you're listening, it's not a critique of your turkey. Sure, of course. Yeah, like it's just a general statement. No, no, your mom's clearly top two moms on the planet. Yeah, Uh, I'm very excited to see mine over Christmas, and we are going to eat a lot of stuff. Uh, But before that, Ben, a lot to cover today. I'm excited to talk with you about the Omicron variant. Mm. Uh, New, uh, new, new variant just dropped. Uh, We have a history making leader in Sweden. (laughs) Natural gas pipelines, uh, tensions in Ukraine, corruption and spying at FIFA. Jared Kushner goes hunting for some kickbacks in the Gulf got a historic election in Honduras, why things are looking bad for the Iran deal. Drones, Barbados, maple syrup, and Oasis are making news. Uh, then I talk with Pashtana Durrani, who is the founder of an amazing organization called Learn Afghanistan. It is helping women and girls in Afghanistan get educated. They are still doing that work, even after the Taliban takeover. So stick around for that. Uh, very, very brave person. Um, for those, Ben, who want to pour one out for 2021, Crooked Media is presenting What a Year. It's a live stream on Tuesday, December 7th at 5 p.m. Pacific. We'll be doing all kinds of stupid, entertaining nonsense to raise money for the No Off Years Fund. 
just helping organizations, you know, registering voters, knocking on doors today in key states. So check it out at cricket.com slash what a year. Also, check out Pod Save the World on Snapchat. Last week, we uploaded a funny cut down of our segment on Justin Bieber, Saudi Arabia, and Formula One racing. So give yourself the gift of subscribing to Pod Save the World on Snapchat Discover. Also, Ben, give your friends the gift of Ben's book, After the Fall, for Hanukkah or Christmas. Where do you come down on the correct spelling of Hanukkah? I mean, I, I, I use the H, the H spelling. No C? Yeah. No, but I mean, I you know, uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm only half Jewish. I don't know if that <laughs> I don't know if that that f- f- factors in. See, I always say it in my head is Chanuka. Um, yeah, I mean, th- that's the non-Jewish pronunciation. It's the goy way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hannah's but, uh, mother's side is Jewish, and uh, they they let the goy get how do they the spell? How do they spell it? I don't know. I'll ask them. Yeah, I mean, um, it is a great Hanukkah stuffer. Um, if you uh, after the fall, um, so if you read it, if you like it, get it for that loved one in your family. I actually it occurred to me. I have one other. I have a piece dropping uh, on the New York Times tomorrow. Mm. Um, they had me review a book, a great book. Which one? Called Looking for the Good War. This uh, extraordinary professor at West Point, this woman named Elizabeth Samet. Um, it, it's about how our nostalgia and mythologizing of World War II Ooh. has gotten us into trouble. That's super interesting. Super interesting book. And she gets into culture. She gets into like the, 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 the you know, she gets into like the greatest generation in the, the kind of Tom Brokawization of World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but basically, you know how the kind of you know, xenophobia and 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 war can be this good thing, and if the U.S. goes to war, it's always inexorably for the best. Uh, how that's gotten us into some trouble. So that's dropping tomorrow. And my one other plug is David Limey, friend of the pod, mm. elevated yesterday to shadow foreign secretary. That's by so Farmer. So that's very I mean, cool. If you listen to this podcast, you are. You were early. You, you bought were ahead stock. of the Lammy curve. Yeah, you had Lammy stock early if you're a world though. That's so. very cool. And I will, I'm excited to read that book review. I do think about, um, you know, the way we talk about World War II and veterans and the, and the sort of gauze that gets put over it. But, yeah. you know, I think black veterans of World War yes. II in the South were treated like horribly and, and were subjected to violence and lynchings and in numbers that were shockingly high. Yeah. And she has this amazing segue in the book about how she gets into the segregation of the armed forces, and but also how the mythologizing of the Civil War was kind of the act one of what happened in World War II, and how some of the rehabilitation of the Confederacy kind of was part of the, the buildup to the war, because it was like bringing in the South, like, hey, we'll celebrate your war heroes, you know? Interesting. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Do we blame that one uh, famous documentarian? Ken Burns, is he at fault? He doesn't, you know, he, he escapes judgment. I'm just trying to find an enemy. A lot. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I felt bad, like, dinging Tom Brokaw in this uh, review, but, like, uh, they, there was a, a quote that she has of his where he's like, the, the, this is the greatest generation that any society has ever produced okay. in human history. And it's kind of like, it's funny to think back on how, how widely, like, just that kind of jingoism was like, yeah, <laughs> like, we're all for that, you know. Yeah, American exceptionalism, uh crescendoed yes it crescendoed right around that time all right well that's a lot of good stuff uh let's start with a much more depressing topic the omicron variant omicron omicron i don't care 
Uh, big thank you to all the media organizations out there that decided to issue breaking news alerts during Thanksgiving dinner about this new variant <laughs> of COVID-19. Right, because everybody's about to fly home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like we're on a plane. It's just the worst. It's too early to know what exactly the impact of the uh, Omicron variant will be, but there are concerns that mutations to the virus could make it spread more easily. So that's why this has gotten a lot of news. It was first detected in Botswana, South Africa, then detected a bunch of cases, followed by news of the variant spread into Europe. The U.S., the U.K., the European Union quickly announced travel bans from South Africa uh, and neighboring countries. Israel said they wouldn't allow any travelers uh, into the country for two weeks after Israeli health officials identified a case. So that's how seriously people are taking it. The travel bans uh, have led to enormous frustration from South Africa uh, and other countries in the region that felt like they did the right thing by identifying and speaking out about this Omicron variant are now being punished by travel restrictions. A lot of countries in Southern Africa are dependent on tourism, and this is a, a huge economic hit at the worst possible time. So, Ben, hard to know what to make of this yet. Just a couple of thoughts I had just from reading the coverage. Like, one, it is a reminder that vaccine equity is a huge problem. 10% of Africans have received one dose of a vaccine as compared to 64% of North Americans. That is disgraceful. But I also do think that there's a little bit of sloppiness in the coverage, and we need to be mindful that. Finding this variant in South Africa or Southern Africa doesn't mean it emerged there from an yeah. unvaccinated person. I mean, that, that's a reasonable thing to think might have happened, but we don't know that yet. I also understand the frustration uh, about the economic impact of the travel bans. And I really do sincerely worry about the message it sends to other countries about transparency and that they could be punished. Um, this travel ban also seems to be a bit flawed because Americans, again, can travel back to the U.S., but foreign people can't, so there's some holes into it. But it also does seem reasonable to me to put in place some sort of travel restrictions for like two weeks until we know more information about the variant to maybe slow its spread. I mean, I would bet money that the Omicron variant is already in the US, but you know, this isn't binary, right? It's, we're not like stopping it or allowing it in. It's a matter of degree. So I don't know, any thoughts or early takeaways or anxieties from you based on all this flood of coverage? I mean, I, I share everyone's anxieties, so I, I don't have to name them. Uh, the couple things, first of all, on the vaccine equity issue, um, I think this got a little sideways too, because it weirdly got tied up in this country in like the booster discussion, which is the wrong way of looking at it. Like the, the scale of vaccines necessary to deal with vaccine inequity are not going to be filled by like you not getting a booster CVS, you know? Yeah, I think there's a um, micro and a macro, there's a macro policy issue. making decision. And, and the, the macro, macro matters. Yeah. yeah, and the macro issue that that really bothers me is clearly, you know, the more we talked about this, the more the disease is allowed to kind of spread unchecked in unvaccinated populations around the world, the more likelihood that you're going to have the development of, of, of new variants and inevitably people travel and it spreads. And right now, what I worry about is where's the next big tranche of funding for significant distribution of additional vaccines. Because you saw the announcement last year at the G7 uh, of a substantial, you know, 1 billion vaccines. We said at the time, that that's great, but that's actually nowhere near what's required. And you haven't really heard anything about where the next US tranche of funding is gonna come. And we know how hard it is to get things out of Congress these days. Um, uh, where the next big international push is going to come. So I think this should be a reminder that now is a time for countries to lean in to creating new funding sources and disseminating more vaccine. And, and again, I don't think that comes at the expense of boosting your own population. It's just about 
producing more vaccine and getting it to more people, getting yeah. more arms. I mean, look, I, I think the booster decision, it's complicated, right? Because at a macro level, if every American gets boosted a third a third shot and then we all get boosted again in six months or a couple months for this new variant, like that will, I think, constrain supply in a way that will advantage us in the yeah. U.S. and other, other countries. But at the same time, I mean, Moderna still won't share the recipe yes. for their mRNA vaccine with other suppliers, including ones in South Africa who could be producing it. So those, I think, are the most important macro decisions. And that's the, that's my point. I mean, yes, in, in some ideal worlds, like you would have every dose going to the widest possible population in a world in which it's inevitable that countries are going to boost their populations. What you need to be doing is doing everything you can to significantly ramp up supply. Um, and whether that's sharing the recipe or whether that's just spending money to buy more vaccines and get them more arms. I think on the travel piece, I totally share the frustration expressed by South Africa that they feel like they're being punished for doing the right thing. And and the thing is, there there are steps that are in between like a travel ban and not doing anything. Yeah. So like during Ebola, I remember there were additional restrictions or or requirements, you know, testing um, quarantine requirements. Quarantining seems exactly. like it would make so, sense. So, you know, you could uh, find solutions and, and hopefully the Biden team can pivot quickly to this to mitigate those economic impacts where, yes, there's if you're coming from a place where you just discovered a variant that's potentially problematic, um, you may have more layers of screening or more quarantine requirements I think without having to just shut down travel. Because the reality is, too, as we've seen within India, and the Delta variant, like th- th- these these variants are going to get end up everywhere. I mean, yeah. it's just the, the right. logic of how the world works. No doubt, and, and you know, and frustratingly, tragically, um, supply shortages of vaccines aren't the only problem. There's now vaccine hesitance globally. Globally, yeah. there are last mile problems of you know distribution to get vaccines into arms. So it's a very very complicated problem. Andy Slavitt from uh, who was one of the uh, you know for the first six months or ten months or something like that, he worked at the White House for Joe Biden doing you know, uh, vaccine distribution work, essentially. And he recommended immediately surging several hundred million vaccine doses to Southern Africa. Seems like a very good idea. I wonder how feasible it is to get that done quickly, what uh, infrastructure would be needed to set it up. But um, it seems like, you know, that's a good idea. Yeah, it's a good idea. And and like, it's what's going to be necessary. Because we've also talked about how spotty the whole approach to international travel is too. Like everybody has different requirements. None of this stuff is harmonized. And and I don't know how long that is tenable, you know. And by the way, it's increasing inequity in, in other ways. This is a small issue relative to the bigger issues that we've been talking about. But the one thing I, I noticed and heard at Glasgow, for instance, is, hey, a lot easier for all these vaccinated government officials and diplomats and civil society people from the global north to turn up at an international summit, a lot harder for people who are unvaccinated and, and, and have a harder time traveling huh. because of travel restrictions. So there was an underrepresentation mm-hmm. at that climate summit from the global south. And that's just one thing. But I'm sure you're going to hear that across the board at any kind of international event or thing. And, and, and again, it may seem like a small thing in terms of the number of people it affects, but it kind of speaks to this kind of tiered system where like we're emerging from this and we have our vaccines and we have our vaccine, you know, passports on our phones and things like that. And and there's just going to be 
a huge lag, and, yeah. and that's just not fair. And yeah. it's not it's not good for our own public health either. Yeah, it's one of the billions of ripple effects of this virus. I mean, I bet six months ago, none of us would have cared much about a shortage of shipping containers, and now it's like yeah. the only thing Biden is worried about. Yeah. Um, okay, Ben, this next story, uh, I would say this has some good news, some bad news, and then a lot of twists and turns. So, good news. Sweden appointed its first ever female prime minister last week. Bad news. She resigned just seven hours later. Tough. Now, here's the backstory. That's like a makes Scaramucci look like a lifer. Yeah, yeah the mooch. <laughs> Magdalene Anderson from the center-left Social Democrat Party, she pulled together a coalition government that included members of the Socialist Left Party and the Green Party, and she became prime minister by a single vote. Interesting system under Swedish law, Ben. You only need a majority of MPs to not vote against you. So 174 MPs voted against her. 117 voted for her, 57 abstained. So it was 174 to 174, a tie. You become prime minister. Weird system. Anyway, uh, Anderson's appointment is historic. She has spent the past seven years as the finance minister uh, and is highly qualified. Sweden is the only Nordic state to never have a woman serve as PM. But here was the bummer. Shortly after she became prime minister, the budget that her party put forward was rejected in favor of one from the opposition that included the right-wing Sweden Democrats party who literally have neo-Nazi roots. Bad. Bad. <laughs> that caused the Green Party to leave the government coalition that had just formed and Anderson resigned. But, but. another twist. <laughs> yeah. On Monday, Anderson was reappointed as prime minister. She's now going to try to lead the government until the next set of elections in September. So, Ben, uh, I realize that our two-party system has some real flaws, but maybe we're learning so does Sweden's eight-party parliamentary system. I don't know. That was my takeaway. Yeah. I mean, look, positive breakthrough here. Uh, that's part of this trend, right? We've seen some of the better up-and-coming politicians in the democratic world tend to be women, often younger women. Um, and and, and I, I, you know, we've run into this in a few European countries where the old models of how you build coalitions have been somewhat scrambled by the rise of these new parties. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's like these far right neo-Nazi parties, not good, or whether it's the rising strength of Greens relative mm -hmm. to Social Democrats. And so the, what that means, we saw this in the kind of laborious government formation in Germany, the traffic light coalition of libertarians, Greens, and, and Social Democrats, that like it used to be plug and play. Oh, we have our natural coalition partners and we just put this thing together. And I think what we're seeing in more and more European countries is you have to kind of reinvent the wheel each time that you're putting together a coalition, which makes it more fragile. I think the basic rule of thumb that is a good one is to try to avoid any reliance on the votes of Nazis. <laughs> like that's just, like my recommendation right, to write that down. our European friends here. Like I, I, I know the woman, I met the woman who became prime minister of, of Estonia named Kaya Kallas, um, who's remarkable. She's, you know, I think she's younger than, than about our age. And she actually, even though she got the most votes the first time around, she didn't become prime minister because she wouldn't get into a coalition with huh. some of these like far right creeps. Good for her. It, better to not rely on those votes. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I mean, you, you mentioned this. The Germans did finally form a government. As expected, Olaf Scholz from the Social Democrat Party will be chancellor. He will step into Angela Merkel's very big shoes. So good luck to him. Uh, the Social <laughs> Democrats narrowly won the election back in September. Schultz formed a coalition with the Greens, the pro-business Free Democrats, uh, and then Annalena Bayerbach, who's one of the leaders of the Greens, will become Germany's first female foreign minister. So she's a very exciting uh, candidate. Doesn't seem like there's going to be very drastic changes out of this coalition from the Merkel era, but 
It was exciting to read that the coalition agreed to get Germany off of coal yeah. and expand renewable energy to 80% of their power by 2030. So that's that's pretty ambitious. I Look, like the, they will have a female Green Party leader in Bayerbach as their face of the world. Yeah. Like that is a big deal um, for Greens everywhere, I think. I mean, this is, you know, uh, you've had a Green Foreign Minister before, Njoshka Fischer, but still, I think, you know, having the kind of generational shift like this, but also... The climate thing is important. Yeah, it's cool. You know, like like the, 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 because people were, you know, Louisa Neubauer, who we had on the pod a couple weeks ago in Glasgow, you know, because of what she and others did in Germany, driving up the vote share for Greens and raising the profile of climate because of that, you have Germany moving more decisively off coal. And this is the thing that activists have to understand, climate activists who are so pissed, you know, some very pissed about Glasgow. Hey, look, you know, two more Senate seats in the U.S., and we're shutting down coal here, and Joe Manchin doesn't get a veto. It's, it's just kind of a reminder that ultimately you're going to have to win these things at the ballot box and democracies, and, and Germany's going to be a better uh, climate partner because of this. Yeah, agreed. And, and speaking of Germany, um, there's a lot of churn and talk right now about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, lately, the reports have been the Biden administration is reportedly lobbying Congress to remove sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline that got tucked into this major defense spending bill that is currently moving through Congress. So Nord Stream 2 stretches from Russia to Germany. This pipeline would double Russia's capacity to deliver natural gas to Germany. That is good news for Germany, but bad news for Ukraine because they make money when gas flows through the pipelines that are in their territory. In 2020, Ukraine made $2.1 billion in what are called transit fees. In theory, now Russia could basically reroute all the gas it sends through Ukraine through Nord Stream 2, so screw them. U- uh, Ukraine also views control of these gas pipelines as a deterrent against Russian attacks because Russia is probably not going to start a war in a place if it needs that in- infrastructure to sell billions and billions of dollars of gas to Europe. Probably not. Not That's not a definite. With yeah, the Russians. Unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, with Putin, yeah, yeah. that's not definite. But, you know, it's a good hedge. Uh, there's also concern that Russia could cut off gas to these countries if you get, they get mad at them, they'll leave people freezing, et cetera. So all this comes as Russia is reportedly massing troops on the border of Ukraine. And last week, President Zelensky of Ukraine said that he uncovered a coup attempt against him planned by a group of Russians and Ukrainians. So a very confusing story here. So Ben, you know, given all the context and anxiety about this potential Russian invasion of Ukraine that we've talked about for the last several weeks on the show. How worried are you about Nord Stream 2 becoming operational? And do you think Biden should risk pissing off this new German government to sanction German entities to try to stop it? I mean, the thing's 95% done. I think it was 95% done, the pipeline, when Biden took office. Now they're basically just waiting for German regulators to say, okay, turn it on. Yeah. But that's sort of the, that, that's how close it is to done. I mean, look, in, in an ideal world, this pipeline would not exist. You know, like, like if, if I was, you know, president of the world, like... Uh, <laughs> sweet gig. Uh, yeah, sweet gig. Uh, uh, or instead of just having a podcast. Um, like, yeah, you would not want this to be a revenue stream for the Russians that uh, undercuts the Ukrainians uh, and makes Germany and Europe more energy dependent on Russia. The problem is, like, we have allies and Germany is as important an ally as we have in the whole world. And yeah. sometimes allies don't do what you want. And by the way, a lot of the sanctions we have on Russia, we have in coordination with Germany, in coordination with the EU, which we couldn't have without German cooperation. So it's one of these things that sounds really good in, in Washington to say, we should sanction this pipeline. Well, 
you're talking about your your one of your biggest allies, who's also the linchpin of Europe. Um, Merkel and her party obviously moved forward with this pipeline. The Social Democrats, who are now moving in the chancellery, have supported this pipeline. Uh, in fact, have some you know not so savory uh, ties to it. Uh, George uh, Schroeder. Oh yeah. Um, who is the real the, sketchy? Real sketchy is on the board of like Gazprom or something. I mean, it's not a good situation. Yep. But I, I just I. I I, I come down against sanctioning Germany, you know, like I, I just <laughs> crazy. Uh, well, because we're going to be asking them to do other things yeah. against Russia. Look, I do think we need a conversation with the Germans about this potential invasion of Ukraine that we keep hearing warnings about. Are there tripwires that would make them rethink or re- revise their energy plans? I think if there's a full scale invasion of Ukraine, um, you know, that's the kind of thing where you would say to them, like, I'm sorry. Like, we all have to take some sacrifices here. But, I mean, oftentimes when we talk about sanctions on Russia, we're talking about the U.S. largely asking Europeans to take a larger economic hit than us. And, and, and you know, uh, even though I think they should, like, I think we have to accept if you want to have allies on other things, you, you can't sanction them. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out that you know, I think the Biden team is concerned because this type of sanction that got written into the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Bill, would leave them without any way to issue a waiver or it could fundamentally change the way sanctions work going forward and their ability to impact them. It's also worth noting that Ted fucking Cruz is holding up the nomination of tons of Biden's foreign policy nominees in an effort to force him to impose more sanctions on Nord Stream. Where was his outrage when Donald Trump was president Uh, and Rick Grinnell was ambassador to Germany and this whole thing was moving forward? I mean, it just shows you what a bunch of bullshit this is from people like Ted Cruz. 95% of the pipeline was done before Biden arrived. Um, also, just, you know, it's, comp- it's this whole thing is complicated because Germany is pretty reliant on natural gas and they're trying to move towards more renewables. But that's in part because they shut down all their nuclear plants after the Fukushima disaster in 2011. So yeah. there's just like a lot of background. There's a lot here. of stuff going on here. Yeah. Anyway, well, Ted Cruz, you suck. Yeah. And, and Stop the, by holding the way, up all the nominees. The- Two things can be true at once. The pipeline sucks and so does Ted Cruz. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but, but like sanctioning the Germans, I don't think is going to win their cooperation on our Russia policy. No, you know? I don't either. I don't either. Uh, let's turn to international corruption in soccer uh, because the Associated Press had a major report that said that for several years, Qatar, the country, has employed a former CIA officer to help them spy on rival bidders for the 2022 World Cup soccer tournament. They also spied on key decision makers at FIFA. This former CIA officer's name is Kevin Chalker. The AP report said that the surveillance Chalker's firm provided, including having someone pose as a photojournalist to keep tabs on a rival nation's bid, having someone pose as a honeypot on Facebook to try to get close to officials, and keeping tabs on Cutter's critics in the soccer world. One document the AP reviewed put the budget for the spying at $387 million over nine years. No word if that was a little all bit spent. more than a CIA salary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Uh, Chalker also promised to help Cutter quote maintain dominance of its foreign-born workers, which is disgusting as they are often exploited and forced to work in totally unsafe positions. Um, it's worth noting that this asshole was working against an American bid for the World Cup with that uh, you and I both worked on <laughs> you at and the I, time. <laughs> that that was like relive that story. That was like a just a pause for a second. That was a great slap in the face. It was that in the Olympics bid process yeah. where when we, a bunch of naive-ass Obama people went yeah. in thinking this thing was on the level and just got punched in the face by corruption and like bags of cash getting handed out by people. Yeah, it's when we were flying back from Obama making the final sale on the Olympic bid for Chicago <laughs> and we had champagne on the plane 
and then we were eliminated in the first round because everybody else fucking was bribing the IOC. Yeah, we didn't get like fourth, right? Yeah, yeah, no, we were last place. Dead last. And, and they had the best bid. Like, it didn't matter, you know? Unbelievable. So, Cutter's also been accused of bribing FIFA officials to get their votes for the games in the first place. So, Ben, two pieces of this. One, FIFA, hopelessly corrupt organization, needs reforms. Two, there's this problem with these former intelligence officials using skills they learned from the U.S. government to protect our national security to instead help corrupt authoritarian regimes. I know Adam Schiff was working on a bill to make this kind of, you know, spy for hire stuff harder to do. But I, I don't know. I don't know if you've seen any updates there of thoughts on like ways to make that move a little faster. So, I mean, first of all, the we have to track this competition between FIFA and the ISC to see who is the most corrupt and yeah. odious and awful Good sports point. entity. Uh, the guy who was running the bribery scheme for the Rio Olympics, uh, I saw, like just got uh, put away mm-hmm. um, at the same time that we learned about this. And, and as we talked about here, like in addition to making no sense as a World Cup venue, like you've had workers dying building these, uh, foreign workers dying building these facilities. I think that this, we keep coming back to this private intelligence thing it really is one of the most underappreciated stories in the world. You've got insane Russian mercenary outfits, the Wagner Group, like at at war in multiple countries. You've got spyware harassing dissidents, harassing journalists around the world. You've got former CIA guys, like establishing dominance over foreign workers who are probably having their passports removed when they get to Qatar and being thrown into work. There needs to be regulation of this industry. It's like the Wild West out there. Anybody with a bunch of money can, you know, hire whoever they want to have their own personal CIA. That is an insane way to have, like, power allocated in this world. And it's no surprise that often the Gulf countries that have all this cash, because they have endless oil and gas reserves, like, are the ones taking the most advantage of this other than, like, you know, countries like Russia. Can I read you one example? Uh, retired General Keith Alexander, who was a four-star general who ran U.S. Cyber Command under President Obama yeah, yeah, before yeah, he retired yeah. in 2013. He has a contract with the Prince Mohammed bin Salman College of Cybersecurity, Artificial <laughs> Intelligence, and Advanced Technologies. What do you think those guys are up to? You think they're doing good stuff? Metaverse? I, <laughs> I mean, what did you do in college? Like, <laughs> like, like, not whatever these guys are doing. Not what they did. I mean, no. like, what, what do you? What, what, what's the career track? What are the majors there? Like, you can major in like uh, harassing uh, dissidents. You yeah. can major in establishing dominance over you know foreign enslaved labor, you know, like... Yeah, droning Yemen. What else, what yeah, else do they I do? I mean, this is like... So there needs to be like a real regulatory structure put up around this. There needs to be much more international discussion of this. By the way, like the, the, there's, there's a big hub in London of this kind of stuff. We've probably invited all manner of intelligence, but no, just by talking about the show, I know, makes me I've got I've got Black Cube up my ass, uh, <laughs> a bunch of bunch of former Mossad guys. Like this is not it's it's it, but it's really ugly out there. I mean, this is something that needs to be reined in and yeah. reined in fast. And, and to your point on the IOC versus uh, FIFA, who is worst competition? Yeah. Just wanted to point out that uh, a, a IOC official named Dick Pound said that criticism of the Peng Shui video that we talked about last week was silly. So critics like us were silly, says Dick Pound. Okay. 
Okay, Dick Pound. I mean, like, what a fucking joke that guy is. I mean, not, you know, for, for a lot of reasons, uh, particularly... Name's the least of his but problems. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, like, for him to kind of come out and lecture people, because wh- what did they accomplish? We, wh- where's Pong? Like, wh- like, has she been able to leave China? Has she been able to tell her story? Like, do we know what happened to her yet? Nope. Have the allegations she made been investigated? None of that has happened. These guys wanted to have a Zoom and put out a press release and then have Dick Pound come out and tell us all to shut up. Well, fuck you, man. We're not going to shut up. Where is Pong? Like, what, what, like what, what, come on, man. He's the worst. What a name. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org rebuild. That's rescue.org rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, got this election coming down the pike, there's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld.
Uh, ben, speaking of corrupt assholes, uh, Jared Kushner is back in the news. So as predicted a thousand times on this show, Jared Kushner has converted his job, formerly cosplaying as Secretary of State, into an investment fund where he can deposit kickbacks for all the favors he did for his favorite golf autocrat buddies. Uh, so far, the results are mixed. This gave me a little bit of hope, Ben. The New York Times reported that Cutter told him just to piss off. They're not going to invest. The Emirati Sovereign Wealth well, Fund. After he like, organized the blockade of Qatar. <laughs> like, like, you know, what, then he goes to ask for money? Come yeah, on, that's pretty, pretty ballsy. Uh, the Emirati Sovereign Wealth Fund reportedly loved the special favors that Jared did for them in government, but they think he's bad at business, so they said no. Uh, of course, Jared's bonesaw buddies in Saudi Arabia jumped at the opportunity and were reportedly uh, negotiating a, quote, sizable investment in his new firm. But this has got to hurt Jared. Former Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin has gotten checks from the Saudis, Emiratis, and Qatar. So kind of making him look bad here. So, Ben, here's my question. Since the insurrection, there has been some reporting that has tried to put some distance between Trump and Jared and Ivanka. I'm sure that was all oh, part yeah. of a PR a per- plan. A person close to Ivanka and yeah. Jared said that they didn't like the coup and the people that got killed in it. You yeah. Know. Uh, you know, like they did a little campaign to sort of yeah. get them back into the little social yeah. clubs. How long do you think it will be until we read some credulous article about how Jared will again be a kingmaker if Trump runs again, becomes elected again, as just a little something that he can forward yeah, along dangle, to prime the pump? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, this is all so obvious and has been so obvious for so many years. And and the fact that Jared Kushner is not as good a business person as Kendall Roy Right. It's, this is a guy who ran like a, a newspaper that his dad bought him uh-huh. uh, and then inherited some buildings. Uh, like not a lot of work you have to do. to Bought do one that, at the right? peak. And, and, and so like even the Emiratis, right, who have like endless amount of money to shovel people are like, well, like, like we'll, we'll give a little bit more to Mnookin. At least that guy, you know, other than that weird movie he made starring his wife, like <laughs> at least that guy's like made some money in his life. He's done things. Like Jared just. But like I was talking to somebody about this. Like when they were talking about Jared getting a fund capitalized at around what two billion or something, you know, Jared stands to walk away from that, you know, with a few hundred million dollars, even if he does basically nothing. It's right? probably like a two and twenty structure, which yeah. means they take two percent of the money you invest as a management fee, and yeah. then they take twenty percent of the profits. So you can basically fail your way through it and still make a sizable. And amount still of money. Ma- so just think about this: like these are foreign governments, autocratic foreign governments with their own sets of interests that are different than America's interests in a lot of cases, basically paying somebody a, you know, what will become a few hundred million dollars in his pocket for a job well done in protecting all of their interests when he was in government and as a down payment on what he might be able to do for them as conciliar, son-in-law, whatever the fuck his role will be in the next Trump 2.0 if that like God forbid happens, right? Yeah. This is how corrupt this whole system is. Wild. Uh, and and like it it's worse than it's you know, it's funny, like our our media is designed to including us, right? You know, we, we talk about like Mike Pompeo got like an expensive bottle of scotch or something mm-hmm. and that's corrupt. Or, you know, somebody got a free ride on a private jet. This is of a scale of corruption, both yeah. in terms of the money he's getting and the services he rendered to get that money. Covered up a murder. It is so much worse than corruption skin. Tom Daschle, if you recall, I do. like had to bow out as our HHS secretary because like he didn't report 
what like taxes, taxes on, on a, a driver or yes, something yes. and then this guy is like, like tom dashell very skilled you know like like guy who earned the job senate majority you know? leader like yeah. what is it's so stupid how like what is what is like, the the scale of corruption if it if it's so big if it's too big for us to even get our minds around it we just don't really pay much attention i to know it. i know well speaking of trump 2.0 um there was an article i think in politico about who he might pick as his vice presidential nominee when he inevitably runs again in 2024 since, you know, the base wants to hang Mike Prince. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a bit of a problem, a problem, bit of a hang-up. Problem uh, for Mike. Yeah, that, so this piece was, you know, look, is written like it was designed in a lab to troll us specifically because some of the names floated included Mike Pompeo, hmm. failed Mr. former Charisma, Secretary yeah. of State, yeah. Mr. Charisma, who's lost like 200 pounds. You see how skinny <laughs> yeah, he is? Yeah, yeah. It's like terrifying looking. <laughs> and, and, and Rick Grinnell, Twitter <laughs> troll turned, what, acting director of national intelligence? Uh, one person quoted in the piece said, don't sleep on Rick. Trump loves him. And unlike Pompeo or anyone else, he has no interest in running for president. That's a big well, issue yeah, for because, Trump. Because what? As if like there, if he had interest, he was going to win? Like, what? He's <laughs> completely like, unqualified. Yeah. yeah like, what, <laughs> like, like, I saw that quote and I was like, is there somebody who, who was trying to draft Grinnell? And then he's like, no, no, I don't have any interest. I'm just going to go troll some people on Twitter for a while, you know? Uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, he did deliver the historic... Remember when he went out and gave that press briefing about the historic Serbian Kosovar yes. deal that he negotiated that turned out that the parties didn't even know what was in the deal? And then he screamed at reporters for not like making a bigger deal out of it? Yes, yes. Um, and then he was named, as we discussed, presidential envoy or something? To, yes. Uh, he's the worst. Yeah, that reminds me of, uh, I think it was a, a famous quote uh, attributed to Winston Churchill, which was, he's a modest man who has a great deal to be modest about. <laughs> Rick Grinnell. <laughs> Rick Grinnell. Uh, the only time he'll be uh, compared to Churchill in his life. Okay. It, is, it is amazing. I mean, like, it, it's the reason to do these investigations because, like, these people are going to reemerge. They you are. Know? All of them. All of them. All of them. And they're all getting paid. Uh, let's go down uh, to the Western Hemisphere. We're about... not getting paid. Well, I mean, just for reading underwear. That's... I mean, we are. But, like, the the scale, I mean, people need to buy more merch or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> in the Emiratis. We're going to do the bulk purchase of, of our merch. You need a, a, a golf spinoff. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of an oil spinoff. Yeah, yeah. Pod save. The spigot? The, the spigot, the, yeah, yeah. The yeah. dinosaur bones? I don't know. Uh, we'll workshop that one. Okay, Honduras. Honduras on track to elect the first woman president in the country's this history. This is awesome. This is exciting. Yeah, yeah well, this is, there's a cool Good uh, news, theme guys. today of like, yeah. you know, uh, women ascending the highest offices in several countries. She would also be the first leader in Honduras elected on a socialist platform. So... Uh, 62-year-old Ziomara Castro holds a 20-point lead with more than half the votes counted. The results aren't final yet, uh, but that would be a thorough drubbing of the 12-year incumbent right-wing National Party in a rebuke of outgoing President Juan Orlando Hernandez, who has been accused by U.S. prosecutors of accepting bribes from drug traffickers in exchange for protecting them. Uh, Castro says she will form a unity government, bring back corruption investigators that her predecessor pushed out, and consider legalizing some abortion rights. Her husband, Mel Zelaya, is the former president of Honduras who was deposed in a military coup in 2009. He's been kind of hanging out in Costa Rica and Nicaragua ever since. Some questions about what exactly he would or has been doing, you know, playing a role in the background. Um, This is Castro's third campaign since 2013. There was a frightening amount of political violence leading up to this election, including lots of candidates killed and lots of horrifying things. So fingers crossed that that won't continue and that there will be sort of, you know, accepted results and, you know, you'll get to the outcome. But notable, uh, historic for Honduras, but Ben, also notable 
in the way that this vote stands in contrast to the increase in authoritarianism yeah. we've seen from neighbors like Danny Ortega in Nicaragua, uh, Nayib Bukele in El Salvador, et cetera. Yeah, no, that's what jumped out to me is like, this is finally good news in Central America. <laughs> um, you've got the Bitcoin bro in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. You've got like Ortega. What I've seen before, though, is sometimes you get an election like this, people get optimistic and then like all the structural problems of, of running one of these countries yeah. just kind of converge on somebody. And two years later, it's like you forget that you ever were once optimistic about this. So I think that for the U.S., like getting in there right away and trying to to help a, a, a an administration succeed, you know, what, what with whatever assistance we can provide, uh, whatever support we can provide, because whether it's the, for the selfish reason of trying to address migration flows, you know, Kamala Harris's mm -hmm. uh, portfolio down there, um, or just simply our interest in democracy in a region that is seeing a lot of backsliding. Uh, I, I think you can't wait because all, you know, there's quicksand that's going to start pulling at any new administration there. Um, I, I do think also like, you know, there's this left-right divide that the, the, the Biden team's got to not tie themselves in knots around. You know, I, I saw today, you know, they're tripling down on their Cuba policy, like slapping more sanctions on Cuba. It's just, mm -hmm. it's going to make it harder for them to build coalitions and, and deal with left-wing governments in Latin America if they're putting meaningless, pointless, you know, sanction on sanction on the Cubans. We are hosting the Summit of the Americas in this country next year. And, you know, one of the great things about going to that summit, it, it happens every three years. It's the only summit of all the countries in the Americas. After the Cuba opening was, everybody was psyched. It was like, let's get back to work. Let's do some stuff together. I worry that we're going to be back in the soup of like fighting about left-right politics again. Mm. It's totally pointless and outdated, but this is good. This is good. Uh, let's turn to Iran uh, because there are a couple updates on efforts to get back in the Iran nuclear deal. So just a bit of technical background here. Um, a key step towards creating a nuclear weapon involves enriching uranium to get it to a very high level of purity that makes it usable as a weapon. We know that Iran is already enriching uranium to 60% purity. That's pretty far along the, uh, the path to a bomb and is concerning. But on Monday, Axios reported that Israel has intelligence that they've passed to the U.S. that says Iran is taking technical steps that will allow them to go further and enrich uranium to 90% purity, which is weapons grade. Doesn't mean Iran would instantly have a bomb. Most experts think that full process would take a year or two, but it's still very bad. At the same time, the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, says that they have been unable to convince Iran to let them replace special equipment that is used to monitor their nuclear program. So negotiations between the US, the EU, Iran, other parties are happening today, I believe, in Vienna. The Iranian negotiator, the new one uh, for the new government, um, is arguing that the U.S. should have to pay a price for Trump's withdrawal from the deal and guarantee that a future president can't withdraw from it, which is a non-starter for the U.S. It's also the, that same fight about sequencing and which side goes first. So, Ben, this is looking pretty dire. You know, it's not just these negotiations are, are seen to be going poorly. It's that experts are increasingly concerned that despite all the sanctions and covert efforts to blow up Iranian infrastructure, that they are gaining knowledge that can't be rolled back. You did this great interview with Rob Malley last week, who is Biden's Iran negotiator. How concerned did that interview make you yeah, yeah. about the yeah. future of these yeah. talks yeah. and like, I guess, whatever else we've learned yeah. in that last week? I mean, you should listen to the interview. You know, Rob was not optimistic. Not at uh, all. It's kind of pretty straight. He told it. I mean, it was a great interview because I think he was very honest, right? Um, I do have to say it was amazing seeing all these vice presidential candidates in waiting, like dunking on Biden, 
because Iran is advancing its nuclear program when it's entirely their fault. Like 100 percent, like very, very few times in the world has there been so, so something so clearly the fault of a collection of people pulling out of a nuclear deal that was working got us here. With that throat clearing, look, I, I just people have to recognize that at the pace that they're going, if they move up to weapons grade uranium, they're using advanced centrifuges, they're getting knowledge, the breakout time is shrinking. Like next year, we are going to be talking about like a real potential nuclear proliferation crisis with Iran. Uh, again, unnecessary crisis, but it will be upon us. And the insanity of the discourse around it in this country that's like, you need to get a better deal than the JC, a better, that, that is not going to happen. There is a 0.0% chance of getting a better deal yeah, than we, the JCPOA. We them that in is the insane deal. after we screw them. And, and there's no chance that we can give them a guarantee about the next president because we just can't in our system. I, I think we just have to be rooting for anything that can slow this clock down and just try to, to, to steer the ship back in the direction of negotiation and back in the direction of a deal. And there, there have been precious few signs out of these talks that that's the case yet. You know? Yeah. And also... There was a big piece a couple of days ago in Haaretz uh, about former Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu's team coming out and saying that his arguments against the Iran nuclear agreement and his, his argument to pull out of it was all a big lie. It quotes yeah. his former defense minister saying Trump's decision to withdraw was, quote, the main mistake of the last decade in Iran policy. Yeah, no, no shit. <laughs> the, the IDF like, chief of staff. Why didn't you say it at the time? I, I mean, that this is the point. This is the point. There's a lot of like right wing hawkish groups. One is called the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. They are wrong, were wrong. They've been full of shit the whole time. It's all a lie. So here's my here's my plea. David Sanger, Bill Broad, reporters, very smart reporters who cover this in depth in major publications. Stop quoting those people. Who know that these people are full of shit. They're totally discredited. Right? They're discredited. They're liars. They are paid. They are paid to oppose an Iran nuclear deal, whatever that deal is. That is never how they're presented. They're presented as, as analysts. The, the, you talk to any of these reporters privately, they know these guys are, are just out there hammering an agenda, but they're quote machines, you know? And that shapes the, the perception of these things. Propped up by uh, Gulf autocrat money. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and, and look, they, they've been wrong about everything. And, and, and everything that was predicted has happened in terms of what would happen if you tore up this deal. And, and, and there's no sanction left that is going to cause this Iranian regime to come out and say, oh, oh, you sang, you, you finally hit the, the nerve. We're going to give up our nuclear program. It, it's, it's, it's one of the most insane issues that, that, that we've had to deal with. And at, at the core of it, yes, like Bibi was at the center of making this argument. It's hard to imagine a scenario in which Trump and the Republican Party does what they did without Bibi pushing them to do it. Yeah, yeah. And it was all built on a mountain of bullshit. A lot of falsehoods about the deal, a, a, a certain falsehoods about the, the possibility of getting some better deal with more sanctions, really bullshit, specious claims about like you still see Mike Pompeo out saying that like it's been proven that Iran violated the deal. He's talking about something that Bibi talked about that Iran did in 2003. Yeah. We're not even yeah. talking about like this is like if, if you really let yourself like like immerse yourself in this, it, it, it's one of the great cell phones. And what I want to know, Tommy, is like, what was it all about? Right. Because I truly believe that Israel will be you know, have a lot of reasons to be concerned about Iran having a nuclear weapon. Yeah. They will be responsible. Bibi Netanyahu will be responsible for the Iranian nuclear weapon. 
and and they, the people around him know it. That's why they're talking about it now. Was it worth it to to to, to, to score some points on Barack Obama and then? I don't think, that, I, I think it was his, his politics. His political future was predicated on keeping everyone terrified of an Iranian threat. Right. Well, guess we, yeah, that's you right. Know? That's right. That's right. It's the same. It's like a politics of the border here. Like yeah, they don't want to. Yeah, yeah. They don't want to fix the border. They want more people coming so they can scare people about it. It's so shameful, though, that, that <laughs> where it's brought us. There are real world consequences to to these things. They're not just like parlor games that that FDD analysts play. You know? Just stop quoting these people, please. Netanyahu <laughs> is not credible on these issues. The Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, which is paid for by autocracies, is yeah. not credible <laughs> yeah. on these issues. Stop it. Well, maybe if your Foundation for the Defense of Democracy is subsidized by autocracies, that that raises some credibility questions <laughs> to begin with. Yeah. You think. Uh, two quick serious things before we get the dumb things. Uh, ben, the Department of Defense announced an investigation into the airstrike in Syria that reportedly killed up to 70 civilians, was covered up, and then the New York Times broke that story. We talked about this a couple weeks back. Long overdue step, but good. But also, interestingly, there's some new data out of airwars.org, which is a site that tracks military operations overseas, that suggests that President Biden has almost completely stopped drone strikes in Iraq and Syria and drastically reduced airstrikes in Somalia and Yemen. So it's, look, I don't can't tell if it's, an, it's a policy change or what, but that in conjunction with the withdrawal from Afghanistan yeah. does speak to a sea change in how Biden is when it comes to ending the forever wars as compared to Trump. So I don't know. It, it, I think you and I saw this data today. We both yeah. were kind of shocked by it. I was, and I'm like, this is great. Like very welcome data, very welcome change. It, it does suggest that ending the forever war is not just about pulling troops out of Afghanistan. It's about beginning to wind down these other activities and, and, and credit to them. I would, I, I, I'd love to, to hear more about it. <laughs> you know, like a, I, at some point I'd love to hear them lay out if they really are doing policy changes and it's not just tactical reasons. You know, yeah. uh, it'd be great for them to, to take credit for it. Yeah, give, give make a speech, yeah. uh, Jake Sullivan. Uh, other news, Barbados, now a republic. They will no longer recognize the Queen of England as their head of state. Dom, Dame, I don't know. Dame. Dame Sandra Mason was sworn in as the first president in the island's Dom? history. Oh, uh, sorry. I don't, I don't know. 55 years after gaining independence from Britain. I think you say Dom Helen Mirren, Dame, Dame Helen Mirren. Yeah, yeah. Leave I, all I this think, in. Yeah, yeah. But, I don't know. I'm not British. Some, uh, if it's a British... I, I, yeah, it's Dame, right? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Dame Sandra Mason, sworn in as the first president of the island's history 55 years after gaining independence from Britain. At the ceremony, Rihanna was named a national hero. So this is a good ceremony. Boy, she is. Um, so, Ben, the queen is still the head of state in a number of places um, in the Bahamas, including Jamaica, but maybe not for long. As our official royal watcher, how do you feel about this? Do you think there's a bunch of other dominoes that are about to fall? I mean, I do think they'll probably be dominoes falling in the Caribbean. Yeah. And it's kind of weird. I've only been to Barbados once for a friend of the friend of the pod, Adam Frankel's wedding. Mm. And um, it's kind of weird when you walk in, there's like a, a British flag and a picture of like the Especially the given the history. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was great to see how joyful the thing was, the ceremony yeah. was, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so I, I do think you'll probably see some, some dominoes falling there. Maybe uh, Rihanna becomes queen. She already is, man. Okay, you're she right. Is. You're right. right. Two final things. Last week, we talked about President Biden's decision to tap the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in an effort to reduce gas prices. But gasoline isn't the only resource getting squeezed by pandemic shortages and weather events. Canada just released 50 million pounds of maple syrup from its emergency reserves to keep your breakfast sweet and delicious. Quebec 
Quebec, 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 produces about three quarters of the world's maple syrup. But they had what the Washington Post described as a shorter and warmer spring sugaring season, which hurt supply right as demand popped. So the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers, often called the OPEC of maple syrup, <laughs> there's a really good uh, Netflix episode, I think, of like Dirty Jobs or one of those yeah, yeah. Um, one of those series on this. Uh, they hit the panic button and they tapped their strategic reserves. Um, you know, don't need another reason to worry about climate change. But here we are. Ben, are you a pancake or a waffle guy? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm a French toast guy. Oh, okay. Uh, that's okay. I, I shouldn't I, have made that binary. I love yeah, French yeah, toast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my kids are pancake, uh, girls. I, I, but like as, as purely as a maple syrup delivery vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll welcome, uh, the tapping of the petroleum reserve here, uh, or the, uh, syrup reserve. I do wonder, does this mean Vermont though might get in a trade war? Like, uh, do they have to issue tariffs oh, yeah. on, um, you know, does, does Vermont have to, to release, do, do we have a reserve? And if we don't, why don't we? Like, does Vermont have a, it's a good a question? Reserve? Yeah, well, we should ask Bernie. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if he's going to invade. Get get Matt Duss on this. You know? <laughs> get Matt Duss, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Duss, if yeah, you're listening, yeah, yeah. I hope you are. Yeah. Fill us in on this one. Um, I, I just want to put my cards on the table and say, all in on pancakes. Pancakes, French toast, really? you're right. Okay. I don't know. We never had a waffle iron. Not a waffle guy. I just yeah. don't think they're that good. Yeah, Lego my ego. You know. Yeah, those uh, those college, I would do. I, you know, in college I used to eat those. Well, you know what the key was with the the egos was if you had a toaster oven, you put the butter on in advance, sort of in little oh. spots, and then you put it in and sort of toast around the butter. Oh, I didn't. That's yeah, good. It's really good. Good tip. Uh, final story. This is one of my favorite stories I've read in a very long time. Last Friday, about sixty people traveled to the Tan Hill Inn in North Yorkshire, England, to hear an Oasis cover band called. Of course, Noasis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Noasis' set turned out to be a little longer than folks bargained for when guests woke up the next morning to find five-foot snowdrifts and impassable roads. Further complicating matters is the fact that the inn is at over 1,700 feet above sea level, so the roads were particularly treacherous. Uh, according to the BBC News, most guests spent the weekend and left Monday after snowplows kind of did their thing. The final couple left on Tuesday because they were driving a new camper van, wanted a little more time. Uh, so far, no one has looked back in anger, Ben, uh, at their impromptu vacation, and guests were singing the praises of the hotel staff who kept them fed and presumably drunk all week. Here's my question for you. How many times do you think Wonderwall was played? I, I was going to say, like, this probably pivots hard into, like, Champagne Supernova. Uh-huh. Uh, the first, the first night, you know. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for this noasis circumstance. I mean, I actually can't think of something I'd rather do than basically go on a 72-hour bender listening <laughs> to oasis music with 60 uh, hilarious Brits. Yeah, with 60 hilarious Brits and like fighting about whether you like Noel Gallagher or Liam Gallagher karaoke. I mean, like Kara- Wonderwall is a, an epic karaoke oh, yeah. song, but then if you get into the bat, if you get into like you know rock and roll star and live forever, the, the first Oasis album is the one people sometimes sleep on because huh. you know the second one was so massive. Yeah, I don't know that I know the supersonic, first one at all. you know, feeling supersonic, drinking gin and tonics. I bet a lot of gin. I mean, one question: What do you think was, you know, was this a gin situation or, or a beer situation? Like. Uh, my when I imagined it in my mind's eye, it was sort of tapping a keg and you know like hitting yeah. the Boddington or just, something. Just doing it. These people were in the best mood. They were like singing the praises of of these people. I mean, like, do you think relationships are consummated? Like, I I feel like like you know 
children were probably created <laughs> at this thing. You know, like like a lot of good came out of this. Uh, the, the quotes I read didn't uh, mention any uh, uh, procreation, but they did talk about how there was like 60 people there and everybody just became best friends because you're stuck. What else are you going to do? And, and what about the Noasis guys? Like the uh, Yeah. I hope they knew a lot of songs. I or mean, brought some sheet music. Yeah, because the, 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 I love Oasis. The Oasis catalog gets a little thin. Um, yeah. Uh, the stupid I, you brothers know, couldn't get along. Yeah, they couldn't get along, right? I mean, it, you know, I, I watched the, the Get Back documentary. Oh, I can't wait to watch which that. Which blew me away and I loved it and made me realize that the Beatles are the greatest band of all time. Uh, I, I do think that the, a similar documentary about Oasis would probably not have been uh, quite as endearing. Just like uh, screaming uh, yeah, fights. Yeah, just screaming fights. Does Paul just write Get Back before your eyes? Is that kind of Yeah, happen? there's this kind of weird genius thing that happens where he's just kind of like jamming around on the guitar and you're like, he's kind of like, he's almost like he's shaking, like he's thinking. And then suddenly he's just going like, sweet Loretta Martin. And you're like, oh my God, I'm watching some genius like birth something from scratch in front of me. You know, it was pretty awesome. That's really cool. I can't wait to watch that. I'm a John guy though. I have to say, I, and like I came away, you come away from the movie liking each one of the four of them more. Hmm. Which is amazing to me, you know, like because there are and and you see warts in all of them, you know, like you see ego and but you still you just like love these guys, you know, they're the fucking Beatles, man. I can't wait to watch that. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm up, I'm behind on Secession. Uh, also, the Hulu has a show called The Great, which is about Catherine the Great and sort of uh, Czarist Russia. Yeah, uh, that is on Hulu and season two just came up and that is fantastic. I cannot recommend yeah, it enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very body body. Don't watch I mean, it with your parents or your kids. Kind of what happens if you're locked away like Noasis, you know, like it's... it's <laughs> There's a lot of Like I, I turned it on and thought it was going to be The Crown and there was like an orgy or something, you know, like... <laughs> exact like, same thing happened to me and Anna. We're like, <laughs> what the hell? I feel like if you turn on The Crown and then suddenly Philip is like 17 women and some, it's there's a lot going on. I think... But by the way, the women, you know, it's about Catherine the Great. So yeah, she is, runs it. She's running yeah. this fucking show, you know. Uh, is Philip alive? Is he the one who's dead? No, yeah, poor one out. Who is the one still alive? The Queen. No, the, the the her hubby. He was in Barbados, I think. Uh, wait, who's hubby? Uh, uh, you know, one of the Brits. <laughs> he was in Barbados. <laughs> Charles was in Charles. Charles was yeah, in Barbados. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Charles is in Barbados. I'm not yeah. the I'm yeah. not the royal watcher. Yeah, I don't know yeah, this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, th- th- I'll check that one out. All right, I'm excited to watch yeah. that. Uh, okay. <laughs> We're going to go to break real quick because we've been babbling for a while. But then uh, my conversation with Pashtana Durrani will be after the break. She's the founder of this amazing organization that is helping women and girls in Afghanistan get educated. So stick around for that. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. I would like to welcome uh, Pashana Durrani to the show. She is a teacher and the founder of Learn Afghanistan, an organization that is working to make education available to girls all across Afghanistan. Uh, Pashtana, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So first, just sort of a basic question. I think, you know, listeners probably saw tons of news about Afghanistan in August. Uh, There's been considerably less coverage since. Can you help them just understand how life has changed for people in Afghanistan since the Taliban takeover and the U.S. withdrawal uh, in the end of the summer? political institutions that the last two decades the U.S. and all these allies, NATO allies, built, today none of them are existent. Today our central bank is frozen. Um, We don't have a constitution. We don't have political parties. We don't have representatives. And the country is not only in chaos politically, it's chaos, it's in chaos in humanitarian crisis, educational crisis, women rights crisis in 21st century. The Taliban are banning girls from going to school. This is how the country is right now. And here's the thing. Three months ago, none of these things were banned. Mm-hmm. We had a normal system. Right. I mean, you, you you know, you mentioned this, you alluded to this. I want to talk a lot about the the political situation, the humanitarian crisis, the, you know, the sort of lack of banking services, all, all these greater challenges. But, you know, historically, um, the Taliban, I think, have been incredibly repressive when it comes to the treatment of women and girls. Has that, is it the status quo with them since they came back to power? They continue to be incredibly repressive. I think because here's the thing you always judge people by the way they have what they have done in the past right mm-hmm. so when taliban say we have changed i'm like okay you control the rural areas you control my district i don't know a single girl who has graduated from your schools who had a single household who has got here electricity i haven't seen a single woman who would even go to the spring to collect the water right i don't have a single hospital in that area so how are you better than the last government that's the first question Mm -hmm. the second is if now that they are in power they continue to be the same people uh i wouldn't call them people but of course now that people the world is recognizing them and they have that status. They are still have that grudge towards women. I don't know what is up with them when it comes to gender. I just, it's funny for me that they don't want the 50% of the country to exist because they don't feel comfortable around them. Yeah. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the organization that you run, uh, Learn Afghanistan, and, and the work you are doing to educate women and girls? How does that work? How, how have you been able to function throughout all of this? Learn is very grassroots level. We are not a big NGO. We don't even have that sort of like, you know, um, uh, what do we call it? Like that formal uh, position in place. We are a very collective community-based NGO. And we started because our rural area from the district where my people left the district because it was a border region, Taliban control, people, 400 families came to Spinball back and that was an IDP camp. And when I went back to Afghanistan, the first thing I saw was we didn't have a school in IDP camp. And my cousin was the first one who couldn't go to school and she was self-schooling. And um, 
learning from home and that's where we started with learn um the reason because i had to like you know push her to go to school and then post her it was a problem for the whole kanda and i was like okay we have this solution here there is an app that is offline it doesn't need a lot of electricity let's do it right so that's how we started it was all community approach it was all basically um community led and still is community led and and it was remarkable to me to read that i mean you you have continued that work since the Taliban takeover? I mean, has there been intimidation or pressure uh, to you to stop? So here's the thing, right? And when August 15 happened, of course, there were people who were scared about me. There were my tribesmen who were scared about me. There are good people in Afghanistan who respect and protect women's rights. And most of them were uh, tribal leaders and they wanted me to get out as soon as possible. But at the same time, it's like more of the Afghan honor and pride that you just can't leave (laughs) the battleground. And for me, that's where the battle started. And yes, we have continued our work because of that community support, because there are people who are still giving us their homes, uh, lending us their homes so we can teach in those homes. There are people who are uh, donating their mobile phones so we can teach girls through those phones. There are people who are actually paying for girls' uh, internet right now so we can recharge and top up their phones. So it's all a collective effort, to be honest. But yeah, the war on <laughs> with the Taliban continues. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who have who have left Afghanistan for good over the last several years, uh, including a lot of you know highly educated people, a lot of professional folks. Is there a role that you think the the Afghan diaspora can or should play to help people back home, even if they have to do so from you know another country? Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. When it comes to Afghan diaspora, so there are a lot of Twitter spaces that are entertained right now. I don't go to most of them, but I do see a lot of them. It's about ethnic politics, ethnic um, divisions and all that. And I feel like it's very important to have those conversations right now. I don't care who's talking as long as they're talking, as long as they're taking that platform, as, as long as they're representing the Afghan voices back home. But it's very important that they are connected to their own people. They represent, represent the true voices of Afghanistan rather than their own agendas, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and this is the first thing that Afghan diaspora has to make sure that they do. And the second thing, apart from that, the best thing Afghan diaspora right now can do is feed families back home because they're starving. Nobody wants to take up arms in Daesh or including the Taliban for their government because they don't have the money, right? Um, the second thing that they could do is if you cannot do a lot, the least you could do is like, you know, send $10 to a girl for her uh, internet char, uh, top up, right? But I, I, most of the time it's just so disappointing. Not that they don't do a lot of work. They have been doing amazing work with refugee resettlements, but I think they have a lot of capacity and they could do so much better than what we are doing right now. Um, you alluded to this a couple of times to me. The, the UN World Food Program has repeatedly warned about the risk of, of famine in Afghanistan. Uh, you recently wrote a, a really thoughtful article where you said, quote, uh, Afghanistan doesn't need a lot of money. It just needs the right kind of money. It also needs its assets unfrozen to meet the scale of the humanitarian catastrophe. Is your message to the U.S. government, to the international community, that it's time to get rid of sanctions and just get back to trying to support Afghanistan and sending aid, even if that aid might get stolen or siphoned off by the Taliban? Here's the fun thing. So when you're giving money to UN and World Food Program, don't you think that the Taliban are taking it? Yes. that the food is actually the food packages that the World Food Program is sponsoring these ads these days and they come up on my Facebook, right? And the guy is like, oh, we are going in snow and we are delivering to Afghan people and all that. 
Don't you think they are at checkpoints where the Taliban are like bring down the food packages because we want to uh, feed our own fighters? Yeah. And um, that happens in an INGO, which is literally like a global uh, organization. It's not even an organization. It's very political. UN is political. So when that is happening and the US has given it a green signal, then why uh, a normal ordinary Afghan who has their uh, account and has money, but has no access to it just because the world doesn't feel like it. Taliban does, don't have bank accounts. Taliban were people who were fighting in rural and, and very mountainous regions. They, they had no time to go to a bank, fill out the forms and have that. Afghan people who actually worked, who actually had something, put it in their savings in those banks. Those are Afghan people's money. That's the first thing. There are good people, respectable people who didn't want to beg for just a packet of flour are right now on the streets because they don't know how to feed their families because the organizations have rolled out their carpets and they are no more there. So when I say and freeze the assets, send it in cryptocurrency, the Taliban will never understand it. Send it to a, a private bank, they will never be able to access it. If uh, America, if Joe Biden can talk to the Taliban through uh, Qatar, uh, to like, you know, because so that they don't attack the U.S. or give uh, safe havens to any other uh, extremist group. Why can't they talk about uh, humanitarian crisis? Yeah. Why can't they talk about strings when that comes with that assets? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, uh, so it sounds like what you're saying is the sanctions that are in place, the restrictions on banking, they're hurting all the wrong people. Is that exactly. fair? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. See. On sanctions, if the countries uh, right now, the sanction is only hurting the people who had savings in the bank accounts. Right. It's hurting the teachers, it's hurting the students, it's hurting all those people who actually worked in the past two decades. It's not going to hurt Taliban. Taliban already have China support, Pakistan support. They get money to run that one small palace. They will have money for the oil generators. They will have money for bullets in their uh, guns. They'll always have all that sort of stuff. What happens is the whole country that had their money in savings and now cannot access it. Right. And I've also read reports that, you know, there are there are hospitals that can't access the banking system to to pay doctors. There are teachers that can't get paid because of sanctions. Yeah. So it's, it just sounds like this effort to put pressure on the Taliban, even if the stated goals are good. Right. They want to pressure the Taliban to be more inclusive of women, to stop repressing people, et cetera. Like those are good goals. But it just sounds like they're failing in all of those goals and, in fact, just hurting all the people that desperately need help. I think I think that's where like you know we have to understand that's exactly my point right now uh, the, this is big money if you send all this money to Afghanistan or if you unfreeze it if the Taliban take it you are a superpower America is a superpower and I'm just talking about America and the allies they don't have that sort of power and they can see they can track that money it's impossible to not track that money Afghanistan can be put into those gray lists of FATF and all that it it could be one of those countries where you just start using cryptocurrency, you know, legitimize it, whatever. But at the end of the day, you're hurting the wrong kind of people to punish the people who are in power. And that's, uh, they are literally enjoying it. They are forcing big companies to feed them all the time. They're doing that with Alakose. I know this. They are forcing all these uh, doctors to give free checkups to their fighters. What happens to normal ordinary Afghans? There are displaced people yesterday in Jalzjan, in Daikundi. They are my own relative died, uh, was murdered day before yesterday because the Taliban thought that his Facebook uh, post was too provocative for their, oh, for their sorry. hurting the wrong people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm sorry to like belabor this point. I just do think like people in Washington need to hear this message from someone like yeah. you because there's all these political forces that are that are telling them we got to be tough on the Taliban and, and, you know, squeeze them politically. And it just it seems like it's so wrongheaded and, you know, 
the, the UN World Food I Program mean, is warning about this massive famine coming down the pike. I mean, half yeah, the country could yeah. be at risk. I mean, like, World Food Program for them, it's another career move, to be honest. I'm... Uh, um, when you talk about Afghanistan, when you talk about all that stuff, two thirds of uh, all that uh, aid that the uh, U.S. is right now going and going to give to uh, feed Afghanistan, which is basically not their duty or responsibility. I mean, like, why should U.S. taxpayers' money go to Afghanistan in the first place, right? But now that it has come to that World Food Program and all that, two thirds of it is going to all the, their um, uh, staff. No, no, only one third of it makes it to Afghanistan. And even in one third, very a small percentage goes to the people where they can afford one packet of flour. Mm. So is it worth it? Is yeah. it really worth it? Right, right. Yeah. So there's a lot of missed opportunities there. And as you point out, I think a lot of um, poorly spent resources that go through some of the biggest NGOs, which is why I think, you know, organizations like yours are so interesting and so important. Um, your organization's website is learnafghan.org. You're doing this incredible work to keep educating women and girls across the country in creative ways on their phones via the internet. What can listeners right now do if they go to learnafghan.org? Can they help you out? Can they donate money? Like, what, How can they support you? So there are three ways that they can support us. The first one is uh, by amplifying our work. That is the most important thing because we, what we are doing right now, right now, as we speak of, girls are not able to go to school in any part of the Afghanistan. Even if you see this news, that is fake. They're not opening schools for anyone. The teachers are not being paid from three months. There are children who are starving and malnourished. The whole southern Afghanistan has a paralyzed public healthcare system, and we are helping in all those things. So A, amplify our work so more people should know about it and actually donate. Because donating through uh, proper channels will actually get money to those people and there are no overhead costs about. So the reason I brag about our NGO is because we don't have all overhead costs. And the third most important thing is volunteer with us. If you know you can teach, if you know there is some sort of knowledge that you have that might help Afghans and Afghan girls, and you think that is a skill that they would need, volunteer with us. We always create these uh, lists and then we reach out to those people to teach uh, in our classes. Okay, that's really good advice. So... Amplify your work, donate, teach people if you can. Uh, Pashtana Jirani, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. The organization is Learn Afghanistan. Again, it is learnafghan.org. You're doing incredible work. Uh, thank you for talking with me today and for everything you're doing back home. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks again to Pashtana for joining the show. Uh, all right, so we got the Beatles doc. We got the great... We got session. Thanks to Noasis. Thanks to Noasis. Uh, yeah. I wonder if we can stream their music. They should become big after this. They should be like the Ted Lasso cover bands. That's a good call. Apparently, the Inns uh, website crashed because they had so much traffic. Yeah, in this yeah, story. Yeah, this is huge. Fantastic. I mean, this is—is is this a movie or is this like a, a ten-part Netflix series? It would be a movie if they kind of ate each other at the end. But I think, yeah. it, it, yeah. well, I don't know. Maybe you could have some breakups, some get-togethers. Yeah. Kind of like a four weddings and a funeral vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's good. Like, we need like a Hugh Grant. You need a Hugh Grant. Setting. Some sort of like you need like foppish. a Hugh Grant anchor, yeah. yeah. Charming. We'll get to that. All right, well, that's all we got for this week. <laughs> My phone goes off. <laughs> yeah, it's never whatever. happened before. It's like 90 minutes into yeah. the show. If you're yeah. still around, thanks, <laughs> yeah, for, yeah, yeah, thanks yeah. for that. Thanks, you just heard guys. Ben's phone ring. Yeah, <laughs> okay, see bye. ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. 
living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.